Hello, everybody. This is Charles Hain, writer at No Film School with the No Film School podcast for the week of December 3rd, 2020. I am here with the editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And we have a government-centric set of headlines this week. We are going to start talking about the L.A. mayor, Eric Garcetti, reversing a decision overturning a decision about a filming location and how Freddie Prinze Jr. plays into it all. We're going to be talking about the <laughs> UK Minister of Culture, which is a wonderful cabinet position, and um, their opinions on the crown, which I'm sure everyone has watched at this point. We're going to be talking about the New York Times list of the 25 best actors of the 21st century. And if it's too early to call that, only 20 years in, we're going to be talking about in tech news, the brand new Filmic Pro update and why that's relevant to all filmmakers. We've got all that and an Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. Our first story this week, Mayor Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles has made a decision that... Um, is interesting. So first off, a little bit of context. First off, full disclosure, back when I lived in LA and I was on the board of directors of the Bicycle Kitchen, uh, we worked with Eric Garcetti's office closely and uh, we had nothing but positive experiences. I know some some lefties think he's terrible, but but everyone we worked with from his office when he was on the city council were very helpful and pro-bike and, and I like people who are pro-bike, but I realize he's probably not done the best job this year based on everything I hear from people who live in LA. Regardless... Uh, Union Station, which is a beautiful old train station from the 1940s. You've seen it in countless movies, including Blade Runner, famously used at LA Confidential, all sorts of movies. Gorgeous. Also, wonderful wedding venue. I went to a beautiful wedding there once. Is a COVID testing station right now. And so, you know, LA lets you make appointments and, and 500 people showed up for appointments only to get them canceled for the remake of the Freddie Prince Jr. movie, She's All That. It's being remade as He's All That. Ooh. And they wanted to shoot Union Station. And so someone, and what's interesting is when when Garcetti reversed this, he said, we don't know who made this decision. And then they listed a bunch of people who didn't make the decision. Um, someone made the decision to cancel all of the COVID appointments so that He's All That could shoot at Union Station. Um, Garcetti after midnight reversed this and made sure all of the appointments were accounted for and everyone could get their COVID test. But there's so many interesting things that I think are worth unpacking here. And one of the really interesting things for me about this is that LA has for so long defaulted to the film industry. Like the default action has always been like, oh, well, the film industry wants it, and so we will have this location, and it'll be available because you're paying the fee, and it's part of the way this whole system works. And it's really interesting to me that, like, that habit has persisted such that, like, my guess is that no one thought about this choice because for so long in L.A., it's like, oh, well, the movie wants it, and they'll pay $25,000, so of course they get it. And like, I totally I agree with that. It's kind of a classic left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing thing where, like, if, if Film LA, the office that does the permitting, and if you've ever dealt with Film LA, you know it's not easy, um, certainly if you're on the indie scale, 
to permit in the city of Los Angeles because a lot of people are doing it because businesses and the government expect a decent amount of money out of it. You're, you're not going to trick anybody into giving you something for free. Well, actually, you might. But anyway, um, it's it's a process. And the process started a long time ago for this project. And so it was set in stone without being aware of necessarily when these massive spikes in numbers would be and all that. So it does make sense to me that it would be going ahead without every single person in the mayor's office necessarily knowing that it was a bad time to cancel a testing site for, I just think these things were independent of one another and, you know, good for the social media backlash that forced them to recognize, well, we better step in and make sure all 504 people get tested. It's just also one of those classic things of like, you know, it's like highway hypnosis where you sort of forget you're driving and then all of a sudden you're at home, which hasn't happened to me in a while because I live in New York. But when I lived in LA, like every couple months, you'd have that thing where you're like, oh, wow, I wasn't really paying attention to what I was doing. Like, I guarantee you, whoever approved this for a moment forgot there was a pandemic, forgot that it was a testing site, and just did the job that they've been doing for however many years of figuring stuff out. Like it just seems so yeah, obvious yeah. that that is the experience. Los Angeles has, it's more accustomed to functioning as a city that's going to do a good job, making sure that a location is available and that it's permitted properly and that the, the right, the T's are crosses, the I's are dotted. It's not, no, we're not accustomed to this testing kiosks and lines of people and keeping and making sure. I think it was just, it's, it's a forgivable mistake as absurd as the circumstance seems. Because I think the media narrative surrounding it is like, can you believe that they canceled the testing site for he's all that of all things? Like it's you know, like starring it uh, TikTok sensation movie. Addison Rae. It's just, it's just like, it sounds so absurd on its face, but it's like, if you've been embedded in the culture of that here, you understand that that's kind of a... That's business as usual. The rest of this is very abnormal. And so, you know, yeah, good thing they changed it. Totally reasonable mistake, though. Yeah, but I mean, it's also one of those things that just sort of happens in Los Angeles in the film industry where like, you know, I remember when I was shooting my thesis film, we had a deal with uh, Claremont Camera. Claremont Camera is no more. So I feel like I can tell this story where we got a camera from, you know, the deal with the USC had worked out with Claremont was you paid the prep fee and you got to use the camera. So we were midway through shooting my thesis film on a movie cam compact. And we got a call from Claremont saying, actually, um, the new Martin Lawrence movie Black Knight 2 needs your movie cam compact. And so you need to bring it back. And... Uh, we'll give you a different camera. And, you know, it's just one of those things that like, you know, like Claremont didn't care about my thesis shoot. Like th they did. They supported it great. But like Black Knight drew more water. Martin Lawrence is a star. He's a legitimate comedy icon. Like, of course, he he needs the camera. He gets the camera. Like that's how it works. So like literally we lost a day of shooting because we had to take the camera back and then prep on Ari BL, which treated us really well. And Claremont, you were wonderful. And thank you, Todd at Claremont um, for taking such good care of us. But like that's just the way it works. So it's one of those things that like those things happen like that. That's part of the deal. You could get bumped. You can get bumped. And it's just so ingrained in us that for a moment, I guarantee you the person who made the call to shut the test, like to approve the permit, it was like four hours later where they were like, Oh fuck. Cause like, it's just, you know, 
it's we have these little moments where we forget there's a pandemic and then we remember again and we are back to the pandemic. In completely un-pandemic related news, the culture minister of the UK, which like, how crazy is it that a modern civilized country still has such things? Like, can you imagine a culture minister in America like promoting culture? We'd get defunded immediately. <laughs> uh, good for you. Uh, UK for having a culture minister and good for you France for having a language ministry that tries to preserve the purity of French ridiculous things by American viewpoints has uh, wants Netflix to start putting a warning label in front of episodes of the crown that it is a fiction show and Helena Bonham Carter who plays amazingly Princess Margaret in season three or four of the crown um, she's like arguably like she's so much fun in the crown uh, agrees uh, vocally. And this is one of those really interesting things that like, you know, when obviously it is fiction, it is not a documentary. It is a TV show. They're always going to take dramatic license. They're always going to compress things to make it more narratively interesting. They are recreating fairy tales and, and impressions. So it just seems self-evident, but then you, you do have to remember that like, not everybody views it that way. And, and culture does have, an impact on perception. What's funny to me is I think the reason why this is coming out more for this season than any other season is a, so many of the players are so alive. Like we're getting to these seasons where it's really recent, but B people who are still alive and likely to be King are not portrayed as being wonderful people in this most recent season. I think that relates <laughs> to it. What's funny is that it's actually a very nuanced, generous portrait of um, Prince Charles and the actor p playing Prince Charles is like very handsome and a very talented actor and, and gives this like very generous human portrait of Charles that like by any standard, I think is probably incredibly generous, but is also portraying someone acting really badly. <laughs> and so it, uh, I, I understand where the culture minister is coming from. So I don't watch the crown. I know that's crazy. I'm not a person who's ever been that. I, I probably should. I hear it's everybody loves it. I've just personally not ever been that caught up also in the story of the Royals, which is, but it doesn't surprise me that it's so popular. It, it doesn't surprise me that this particular season is drawing this because it's Princess Diana stuff, right? That's always been a hotbed of uh, drama in the media and depiction of truth and whose side and, and that business. But I think that the, the interesting takeaway here to me is that for filmmakers, for storytellers and content creators, this is once again a reminder that even though a lot of us are very, very aware that something like this is not a documentary, and even though many of the people who start angry tweeting at the current royals about how horrible they are or whatever it is that's causing Twitter accounts to be shut down, the hate, etc. People have a really hard time separating dramatizations from reality. And oftentimes these things end up writing the story people know. And it's recent history. So, you know, the facts are, are well enough known, but of course not nearly as known as you would think. But just think about how in the course of uh, a, a couple hundred years, just a couple hundred years, how quickly a dramatization would take precedent over fact. Historical fact gets so quickly obscured and narrative becomes the 
the truth, like the famous John Ford movie quote, when the legend becomes fact. What is interesting here is that it's another little window into like, we're in this space right now, right? Where this is recent history about a royal family where, again, like I said, most people know or a lot of people know what actually happened. So when the show diverges, people will say like, yeah, yeah, that's confusing. And that's a dramatization. But in a hundred years, assuming there's still some version of humanity here, that will be very hard for people will be like, wait, did you know that what happens on that show, the crown? Not, I don't know if they'll still watch it, but whatever show they do is not actually what happened. Like it's, it's different because we just lose sight. The storytelling becomes the version of reality. That's the You're way being so go. generous to think that takes a hundred years. I mean, I think it happens immediately. I think a lot of people think Braveheart is history. I think a lot of people are shocked to discover Braveheart is like 99% fiction, except the real William Wallace really did yell freedom. Totally. No, totally. I Did he? <laughs> no, I think that the you're right. I, I don't mean 100 years from release of the crown. I mean 100 years from the incident, the historical incident in question. But it doesn't even take 100 years. Like, uh, you're right. Like, Everybody would go see a movie like, like here's a, a classic one is, is Braveheart. Another classic one would be um, Gladiator. So there was an emperor, Marcus Aurelius. He was a very important emperor. He had a son, Commodus. Like some of these things are true. Not to get too in the weeds, but yes, it becomes fact very quickly. And that's why I think it is important to say, hey, by the way, this is based on historical events, but it's not what actually happened. Because very quickly, people will just be like, yeah, that's what happened. I mean, first off, I could give a shit about the royal family. I've never had any interest in it personally. I've never understood why it's fascinating. I don't understand why they still exist. Like, I really... Yeah, you, you're like, being blunt where I was being delicate. But I, yeah, I'm with you there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get why people care. And I never have. <laughs> but the crown's amazing. Like, it's really well done. The writing is phenomenal. And, you know, uh, Stephen Daldry, one of the creators of Crown came to the school where I teach and one of the students raised his hands and his question was like, how have you made me an African-American man from Brooklyn give a shit about the Royal family? Because I don't, but I do love <laughs> your show. And it was like a really great question. Uh, shout out to Andrew Cashin for asking it. Uh, great young DP. If you were looking for a young DP in Brooklyn, very talented. And uh, you know, Stephen Daldry gave a great answer, but like it is, it is really well written, really well acted really well like there is real nuance in the writing that makes you engage with these people that are fundamentally like a historic aberration that england should get rid of i don't care how much tourism revenue it brings in it's ridiculous you still have a monarchy that's nuts um and so monarchies the show are just good for storytelling have you ever thought about i mean that's a fascinating yeah. thing for storytellers like i think there's a you remember the King's Speech? That came out a while yeah. ago. I think it was the best, best Picture winner. I remember thinking watching that one. You know, part of it is like the rarity of a human who lives those lives as royal um, that becomes fascinating, I think, as a story. So well, I, it also but, takes I mean, family drama, which we can all relate to, and raises the stakes to the limit. So it's like – but what's interesting to me is – Shakespeare did it, right? Shakespeare took the lives of kings and queens and wrote plays about it. And everybody understood mostly that, like, it's not historically accurate. But the only person that really got burned by this 
is Orson Welles making Citizen Kane, and he had the decency to change the name. Citizen Kane is not Citizen Hearst. He changed the name, he fictionalized some details, and Hearst still got so pissed it nearly ruined Kane's life, I mean, Wells's life, and made it very difficult for him to continue to have a career and initially hurt Kane. And he had the decency to be like, no, I'm going to change the name up. I'm going to like play it safe. And like, you know, it, it, and it's still a movie that stands on its own, but the crown does get some glow. Like if it wasn't, if it was the crown, but instead of being Prince Charles, it was Prince, um, um, Carlos <laughs> and, you know, princess, um, Diana and you know they changed the names and they changed a little bit of the details and whatever it would take some of the power out of it so it's interesting that there are these times where you can change the names and semi-fictionalize it and it remains as powerful but the crown would have lost yeah that to me is a fascinating side avenue for the creative and for the writer I think it is, there is a lot to be said for doing what, you know, maybe George R.R. R. Martin did, for example, and saying, I am a big War of the Roses buff, and I would like to retell it, but I'll do it with my fantasy world, and I'll do it with different families, and it'll be the Starks instead of the Yorks, and such and such. And of course, unlike Princess Diana, nobody knows anything about the Starks, really, in our common world today. But I think that there's a really interesting argument or thing to explore for a creative person in that Citizen Kane's a great example. Should I tell a story about the Kennedys that's not the Kennedys? Should I fictionalize it? Should I tell a story about the and, – and I also think from a marketplace standpoint because you're absolutely correct. Like the off-brand version of the House of Windsor – are they the House of Windsor? I don't know. That might not be as popular because it doesn't immediately have, you know, recognizable IP, so to speak. But it might also free you up and it might also still be as good and creatively might become more interesting. I don't know. I think that there's an argument to be made both ways because but you're absolutely right about Citizen Kane. And it's interesting because while we have stories up on No Film School about this situation with The Crown, we also have stories about Mankiewicz, this, the movie Mank. David Fincher's film, what happened between Orson Welles, Mankiewicz, and uh, the subject. And using their real names, even though it's also fictionalized. So not doing the thing Kane did. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just like there's a calculation made at some point, right? There's a fiscal creative calculation made by a filmmaker or a writer that is, what's the best way for me to tell the story? Does it mean, do I have to fictionalize further or or just a little like what because because the truth is the metaphor uh, this I, I feel like this gets a little philosophical almost but like what is the the truth you're trying to convey and can you best convey it by actually changing who the people are or is it better for you to convey it by saying like no it's this person this actual person from history um i think that's fascinating i mean it goes all the way back to homer really because people were like well is the iliad a history? Is there truth to it? Yes, apparently there's quite a bit, but there's also quite a bit of creative license. And to what extent, we don't really know. But this is like the oldest thing in storytelling, really. Like, where do you tell about king, the real kings and queens and, and where do you start to, to veer off? The issues are so complicated about what is fiction and what is nonfiction and where does it end and what are obligation, you know, and like even Werner Herzog, in his interviews is constantly like, even in my documentaries, I feel like I owe it more. Uh, I'm less interested in the accountant's truth than in the essential truth. 
And so there are things in his documentaries that did not happen, but he feels they are true. So he includes them because he feels they they are part of an ecstatic truth. So like it is, I mean, it's all part of filmmaking. Um, I love, you know, the only thing that would happen if people started putting those warnings at the beginnings of episodes of Netflix is then filmmakers would start riffing on those warnings, right? Like how Fargo has the based on true events thing at the beginning of Fargo, even though it's not actually based on true events. And so, you know, it'll just become another thing that we then integrate riff on and uh, experiment with because it's all fiction. All, yes. all of it is fiction. Everything yes. in it is fiction. See, and that's the I, fascinating thing. We're always making narrative in our minds about the world around us and creating fictions. That's why storytelling is actually such an innate thing is because we are reconstituting events into a narrative meaning all the time. And we, when we retell a story, like when we sand off the edges or we alter the corners, like because that's just what we do. So yeah, it is it, when you add that, I love your your point about when you add that, then it becomes another part of the sandbox. Like how does that create a layer of truth or fiction for the next person who's telling the story? Yeah, like if all of a sudden everything in the UK has to have a nonfiction or fiction warning in the beginning, that gives the person who decides what gets what a tremendous amount of power. And, you know, and then also some drunk intern at Netflix could randomly decide to change things up one night. So you know, randomly slapping, uh, this is nonfiction at the beginning of every Transformers movie. Um, so, you know, there's, it's, it's all, it's all funny. It's also especially funny when you think about the fact that like all of the creators of, of the crown are very upfront about it. Uh, I was reading an interview with the costume designer talking about like creating the impression of Diana and like not trying to slav, uh, slavishly match exactly what every outfit was but trying to capture like the essence of why certain outfits struck in memory. And uh, it's really true. I mean, there's a lot of great side-by-sides in the interview. I think it was New York times sort of comparing the original Diana outfit to the way it appeared in the crown, but it like, it's about creating something that resonates within the story today. Cause yeah, I mean, yeah. unless the crown was 30 years long, Unless they literally followed <laughs> Diana and Charles around with cameras for 30 years. And then w you watched it over 30 years. Of course it's fiction. The act of compressing is fiction. Yes. And it's a, it's a very cool thing that you point out about the uh, outfits. Because like if you look at a photo of Diana from the time, it always looks so painfully dated. Like just because the nature of photography feels dated, the kind of stock it would have been taken on, the materials used to make the dress. Like there's so many things that, so to recreate the experience of what it was at the time in its context, you do need to change it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the crown does a really good job of not shooting in like a faux period style. Like it's not, a super right. 80s looking season, even though it's set in the 80s, they still shoot it, you know, in sort of a beautiful classic prestige drama fashion, uh, really beautiful cinematography this season. But like, it's not, it doesn't look like an episode of Saved by the Bell. It's not trying right. to mimic the 80s. And when you look at media of Princess Diana, it does kind of, because that, and that's the thing. I, I've noticed that even in just advertising stuff, it's like, wow, it's so like lavish and, and different, you know, because it's trying yeah. to create the, emotional experience or truth exactly the ecstatic truth all right moving on to the people who create the ecstatic truth the new york times has jumped the gun a little bit 
We're 20 years into the 20th century, so we're about a fifth of the way through. And I want to remind you that if we made this list for 1920, uh, you know. <laughs> it would be a list of three. Yeah. So the New York Times has, has made a list of, I mean, Justice Barnes would be on it. So they made a list of the greatest actors of the 20th century. So I want to go back and say if I made the list in 1920, uh, Justice Barnes, who played the cowboy who shot at the camera in The Great Train Robbery, which uh, was parodied famously in Goodfellas, that cowboy, Justice B. Barnes, would probably have made the top 25 list. And almost none of you have heard of Justice B. Barnes because <laughs> centuries are very long. And, you know, there was a there was a famous uh, Fatty Arbuckle uh, had a trial, mid-20s, I think, for the accidental death of someone at one of his parties. And, trial of uh, the century. <laughs> trial of the century, which, again, none of us have heard of. Because we associate the trial of the century with probably OJ? the OJ trial, I think Which would be the, the trial. end of the century. Yeah, that's yeah. what people say now. Having had a full century, it's it's maybe fair to say it was actually OJ and not Fatty Arbuckle. But uh, yeah, a I century think is OJ... a long time for a human being to wrap their mind around. It's longer than we live, so you know. I mean, speak for yourself. I'm going to hit a century. I'm aiming. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to be that guy who wins all the like over 90 bike contests. Those guys are awesome. <laughs> I would actually argue the OJ trial is the trial of the 21st century because 25 years later we're still living in all of its reverberations in media and culture and the Kardashians and I think that's the beginning of the 21st century. I would say like maybe the Chicago 8 or the Rosenbergs is the trial of the or Nuremberg. Let's say Nuremberg. I'm going to say well, we're Nuremberg. In a, we're- Okay. What was the trial of the century? Send us your nominations. Yes. Notebooksschool.com. No, but it's got to be Nuremberg because Nuremberg was the moment where the historical, where the international community said, you know what? What you did, Nazis, was not actually illegal at the time, but it was so bad, we're going to retrospectively make it illegal. So I'm going to say Nuremberg trumps OJ. At me at Twitter if you want to say that OJ is more important than Nuremberg. And I will listen to your arguments and disagree. Um, regardless, New York Times wants to jump in here with the best actors of the 21st century, 20 years in, which is an interesting list. It caused a lot of conversation in my social media circles. There's a lot of people that I agree with. There's a lot of people that I don't know if everybody is going to say this, but I'm going to say it. Where are the comedians? Where are the funny people? It's like, mm. like there's not really comedy anymore, though, in the way that there used to be. And the 20th first century has been hard on mainstream comedy. Owen Wilson, Will uh, Ferrell, like yeah. In the last 20 years, there have been funny movies that have been successful. Oh, there have, like, yeah, there have. This is this is the thing that you always run into with these lists, where it's always like the best hundred movies of the 20th century, and there's like one funny movie. And like, look, yeah. I, get, I love me a drama. I I enjoyed me the crown. I love there will be blood. I watch it twice a year. Like you know, I love me a drama. But like, comedy is also part of the human experience. Melissa McCarthy shows up, which is great, and Melissa McCarthy totally tr- uh, deserves to be there. Um, but short of that, it is a very, it is a very drama filled list. Although Nicole Kidman has done some comedy and is good at it. I think there's a lot, I, I, I'm really, there's a lot of weird going on here and I'm going to just jump in on, on some of it. First of all, uh, besides for it just being like, it's weird to make these lists in general. And I'm not a big fan of that in general. 
I think that uh, like Catherine Deneuve is on this list. Like she may have had some big movies in the 21st century, but she's definitely a 20th century figure, right? <laughs> That's weird. And and I think when I look at this list, honestly, I, I have to be careful how I say this because I don't want it to come off the wrong way. So I'll, um, this list feels like a really concerted effort to make a multi ethnic, multiracial, multigendered, like th- this is a as varied, which is a great thing. I am 100% in in favor of doing that with our casting, with everything. But I honestly look at this list and I don't think, oh, these are the best actors of the 21st century. I don't even believe there is such a thing. This is a list of great, diverse, representing as many backgrounds and types as possible. And that, to me, seems like the motivation behind it. And I just wish that's what it was called because... That's what it is. That's what this list is to me. It's a fascinating list of people from who speak different languages, who come from different backgrounds, who have different ages, who have different nationalities, who play different types. Like, it's not a list of the best. That's just not what it is. So I, I find that it's pretending to be something. Um, like, it, like in our article on No Film School, it says, like, where's Tom Hanks? Where's Leonardo DiCaprio? Where's, well, they, you know, there's... That, that doesn't fit the model of what they did here to list Leonardo DiCaprio as well as Daniel Day-Lewis, right? So that's what I, I find that really um, jumps out to me about this list. And I'm sure that's a lot of what the trolls out there are saying on the internet in a way that's offensive and missing the point that it's actually more worthwhile to make a list of that's diverse than a list of just straight up best because no such thing exists as a list of straight up best. But I just wish it was called what it, what it is. It also honestly feels a little strange for the New York times to be engaging in best of lists to get traffic. I feel like that's like a business insider tactic of like five best techniques for fixing your Gmail signature. My Gmail signature is broken, which is the reason why I kept searching for that. And like it, haven't we all accepted the same way we've accepted that all cinema is fiction and all cinema, we bring a desire to narrative to all cinema, whether or not cinema meets us at that place with narrative. Haven't we also accepted that there is no way to hierarchically rank movies and actors in performances. Like there's no way to say the best editor, the best cinematographer, like that's not a physically possible thing any more than there's a way to count. Like, what beaches have the most sand? Or you know, the, we you really, know. we really haven't. I mean, in our community, I think we have. I think in our, in our filmmaking community. But this is an interesting point for for those of us in it to understand about the outside of our community. The world outside of our community still sees it as like what won Best Picture, as though that is an evidence is that that's the equivalent of who won the championship. Um, the the there is a very much like a sports or entertainment movies and TV are entertainment and there are bests and that mentality does pervade um, as ridiculous as it is. Cause it is not, there aren't data points. It's not a one-to-one. The, the, these lists are strange. Isabel. I don't even know how to pronounce her last name. I had to Is look there? up who number two. Yeah. I had to look up who number two on this list is. There's oh, a lot of people Isabel on this list. Wonderful. Yeah. She was I've one where I was like, Oh, you're really? Never seen no. Never. You got to go on a new Isabelle Hubert binge. You're going to have a really good time. She is. I guess so. I mean, I'm looking at her IMDb now. I think that's, but that's what makes this list cool. Okay. 
it might open you up to an actor, a kind of performance, some foreign films. Like, just call it what it is. Like, don't try to trick people. I find that... Yeah, 25 actors you should dig into. Calling them the top actors of the 21st century feels like a kind of clickbaity. And, and because we're in the business of the internet, we are aware of that and we think about it. And obviously it works. Um, but listicles, listicle culture creates a sense that there is an, a hierarchy to things. And it's, it's a, uh, there's a scarcity of greatness. Whereas you can honestly say, here are 25 diverse, phenomenal talents who you should explore more. And that might not get you the clicks or the attention. We might not talk about it on this podcast. All of that would be is a shame, but that is a more honest way of approaching it. Yeah, I would agree with that. It doesn't feel very New York Timesy to make it into a listicle with a with a hierarchical ranking, especially because if you're going to do that, like, how about some data? Like, give me some yeah. like you know, hook some people up to emotion sensors or read pupil dilations while they watch movies and see who people respond to the most or engage with the most or like show me who is getting the most replays you know what i mean i mean there are scenes i've watched in movies where i immediately was like i have to rewatch that because the performance was so good i need to like it would be incredible to see not not i wouldn't want this to start dictating how creative decisions are made and it already things like this do but data is fascinating as just exploring, you know, what gets watched the most on Netflix, for example, is fascinating. What uh, and what people respond to emotionally, doing tests, doing like things that aren't just like uh, report how you felt, like self-reporting, like actually doing brain scans while people watch stuff. That would be a fascinating way to create some empirical data around creative expression and experience. But just saying like, hey, our editors picked the 25 best. I just think it's like we have to move past that. But also, if we did all that data, I guarantee you it would probably be like the best actor of all time is Jim Varney or something because he makes our (laughs) But That would be great though. And like, I'm not dissing on Jim Varney. I enjoyed the inner Ernest Goes to Kent movies when I was a child. But like, you know, it's data is... Data is flawed. Our belief in data is flawed. flawed. Our belief in lists are flawed. Yeah. We shouldn't even have presidents. Um, I don't know how I got there, but I got there. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, yes. It's our relationship to data, especially during the COVID pandemic and with the way polling works for this presidential election. It's been revealed that we we invest too much. We don't understand the context of data, the size of numbers. Like so much of it is is confusing to people and inexact, but it's something. If we're going to try and rank stuff, it's something. It is indeed. All right, moving on to tech news. This is a software update and we, we, you know, there's only a few companies we cover the software updates for, but I wanna I wanna cover this particular update because it's also a good reminder to a lot of people who who might not know that this company exists and might not know about the the benefits of what they offer. And it's an app called Filmic Pro, and they just released version six. It's a $15 app. And what's crazy is because it's on your phone, people seem to think $15 is expensive, but $15 is like literally the cost of two burritos. So it is totally worth your time. And what Filmic Pro does is it gives you a whole host of better tools for shooting video on your phone. So when whenever you hear stories about somebody shooting video on their phone and it getting released as a movie, Soderbergh did it with a couple of movies, um, Unsane and then the other one. 
although he's gone back to shooting red. Uh, he's usually using Filmic Pro, um, and a lot of other big popular creatives use Filmic Pro. And the reason why is this. Apple does all sorts of crazy processing to your footage before it's recorded as video. You might have noticed this if you shot low light on your camera before, and when you're shooting in low light, you'll see like this nice dancing noise and it could be beautiful and cinematic. But then as soon as you finish recording and you look at the playback video, Apple's applied like artificial noise correction to the video. Um, and it happens all through the signal path to try and make the video look quote unquote better. This totally makes sense as a consumer product. I completely get why Apple does this. Not judging them for it. Understand the decision making. However, you're not a consumer. You're a maker. And that means you want the cleanest signal you can get from the sensor. Because noise correction you apply in post using Neat Video or Magic Bullet Denoiser or Resolve is always going to look better and more customizable than the automatic noise correction applied by the camera. You always want to be able to control those decisions yourself and not have those decisions done by the camera. And that's what Filmic Pro does. It gets the cleanest signal from the earliest place in the image pipeline as close to the direct sensor data as possible. And with the new app, that is 10-bit data and it's Dolby Vision HDR compliant data. So it's HDR 10-bit data coming straight off the sensor that you can record in your phone up to 1080p 60 or 4K 30. Um, there is also an optional thing you can buy that will let you record all three cameras from your iPhone at the same time. Um, which is crazy cool because with the iPhone, you have to switch between the, th the three cameras, but there are three cameras. And with Filmic, you can record all three as like a multi-cam experience of something that you can then edit together and post however you want. So um, I just- You can like, only do that on Filmic, right? Only with on Filmic. Stuff, yeah. What does the app cost right now? Do you know? 15 bucks. It's a lot for an app, but I think for this app, it's worth it. If you're, if you're doing video on your iPhone, right? It's pretty much yeah. the way to go. If you are trying to do any professional video on your iPhone, you should, you absolutely need to spend the $15. I'll be honest. If I'm shooting a dark video, like, you know, uh, over the holidays, uh, you know, if I'm trying to get a video of like my daughter sitting on my wife's lap next to the Christmas tree lit by the Christmas tree, I switch over to filmic. Um, you know, it's the same camera giving you the same signal but it's got a lot less of the processing that Apple's doing to it. And then I can bring it into Resolve and I can actually manipulate it to look much better than you're going to get with the native processing in camera. So I never bother with Filmic if I'm just shooting my kid running around on a sunny day, but in any dark situation, um, I, I, I fire it up even for personal videos. That's a good pro tip because I bought it and I have it and I don't use it because Every time I pull it out or open it up, I should say, I find that there's a lot to tweak and I get lost in that. And then whatever it was I was going to record because I'm not like really creating content, so to speak. I'm just like shooting stuff. I'm like, oh, it's it's happened or the moment passed or whatever. Um, if you I, I think it's worth identifying that it's really not for, for anybody who's in. You, you have to have some professional aspiration with whatever you're shooting or you have to really care about it and want to do, like you said, pull it into resolve or like, like I found for me, it was hard to, it would be hard to capture a moment using filmic. Um, I'm not saying it's not possible because it sounds like you did that by the Christmas tree, but 
for me, it would become very challenging to be like, wait, I can fiddle this or I can, I can do that or I can change this. And then suddenly like the kids moved on to the next thing. You know? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't it, very point and shoot. It is not point and shoot. Yeah, it's absolutely. But once you get used to it, you know, especially with low light stuff, a lot of your defaults are like slowest shutter angle, widest aperture go. Um, yeah. You know, you're not actually. Well, that's good to know. I didn't. Yeah. So that that's yet yeah, for me. It's like just you saying that I've learned like, oh, OK, those are the contexts within which I could pull it out and put it shoot. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like for the most part, night shooting, you're always just at the widest aperture and the slowest shutter angle to get whatever you can possibly get. And you just eat the motion blur because it's worth it to get the exposure. Day exterior shooting, you're going to get fiddlier with all of the settings to control what you want, but like a night scene or like a low light scene by the Christmas tree. And I only bring this up because last year I did like Christmas tree shots on my phone without filmic and I hated the artificial noise correction that Apple applied to what I thought was a nice looking shot. So, you know, the continual evolving of the dad cast. (laughs) Oh no. And our last item this week how uh sarah zimmerman asks how to convert 60 frame per second footage to 24 frames per second so she has a video camera that shoots in 60 frames per second that they're planning to use for some more footage on a short they're making and they want to intercut it with 24 frame per second footage they've already shot so my first piece of advice is do everything you physically can to find your a way to a 24 frame per second camera. Cause the easiest thing is just to have all your footage in the same frame rate. If you still haven't shot this footage, find a 24 frame per second camera, whatever that costs you to rent. And it might be a hundred a day. It might be 50 a day. Your phone might shoot 24 frames per second. It will be easier than trying to mix 24 and 60 frames. Mixing frame rates is always a headache. It is always annoying. Avoid it at all costs. If you're thinking, Oh, I'll just deal with it in post. The hours of your life you're going to waste in posts dealing with mixed frame rates will be so much like it's just worth it to find the money to rent a cheap 24 frame per second camera. I mean, the DVX100 is 17 years old. The DVX100 can drive a car. Um, you could probably buy one for $100 and it shoots 24 frames per second. Like, please don't mix frame rates. Please don't mix frame rates. However, if you have to mix frame rates, um, in my experience, Resolve does this better than any other. So cut and resolve. And um, you can bring multiple different frame rates into the same timeline and resolve and resolve handles it pretty well. So that is usually the best bet. When I want to do the best possible conversion, here's what I do. I set up two computers. I set up Resolve on one machine with a 60 frame per second timeline going to any kind of video output device, usually like a Blackmagic intensity or a mini monitor. And then use an SDI cable and I run it into a Terranex Mini and I use the Terranex Mini to do a hardware um, frame rate conversion. And then I ingest with uh, the second machine uh, with the Terranex Mini set up. So, um, cause you can plug your Terranex Mini into a computer. So you need two computers, you need a monitoring solution and you need a Terranex Mini. I've done this maybe a dozen times. So it is a thing that ends up happening. And that, in my experience, has given me the best cadence conversion results. It is a hardware conversion. It is hardware that is specifically customized to do it. Um, it's hardware that's way cheaper than it used to be. A Terranex used to be like 60 grand, and now it's like a grand. But it's still a grand that you'd have to buy or find a way to rent one. So avoid it at all costs. 
if you have to do it, two computers, SDI and Terranex is the solution. That is the Ask No Film School and the No Film School podcast for this week. Uh, George, do you have any pluggables to plug? Um, yeah, we want to thank everybody for listening and head over to nofilmschool.com. You can read about all these stories and more. Um, please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. If you have any questions for us, email them to ask at nofilmschool.com. We will look into them and answer them or Charles will, and I'll just listen along. We have a lot of cool stuff going up on the website. Um, Sound Week is coming to No Film School. That'll be in December, and there will be tons of great sound content brought to you by Rode. We also have an interview up on this podcast with the editor of The Queen's Gambit. She is a great interview, Michelle Tessero, and uh, it's definitely worth a listen, and people love this show, but she's had a great career cutting prestige TV, so she has all kinds of great stories with people she's worked with, so check that out. You can check me out at, on the web at charleshain.com or Instagram and Twitter at charleshain, and always feel free to ask me questions or give me a hard time at uh, charleshain on Twitter. People Specifically people love give him a hard time about the trial of the century. That's the one oh, we really want. To yes. Around. I really want to hear if there's uh, something that trumps Nuremberg in that respect. No lawschool.com coming next year. <laughs> we will just talk about trials. When we actually decide we want to get rich. All righty. <laughs> See you guys all next week. 